Turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Now, we're going to wrap up our summer sermon series entitled Church Matters. Sometimes things that you say can uh, come out differently depending on how you say them. It's not only the, the, the text, but it's also the tone, right? So it's like when someone says, I love you. That's different from, I love you, right? The same words, but one's different. Or, you know, let's eat, Grandma. Okay, versus, let's eat, Grandma. Right? Same, same words, but just the way you, the, the, where you decide to put the accent, where you decide to pause. One, uh, you know, brings to mind a picture of grandma coming in with fresh cooked food, and the other one pictures grandma running out for her life. Church matters. Church matters. We've looked at different matters that uh, we deal with within the body of Christ. Different things that we deal with as people who are part of the local church. Church matters. We've looked at several of them over the course of the summer. And I hope that you've been uh, moved by them, equipped by them. And that those who have brought the word to you uh, have served you well. And I was on uh, sabbatical for most of the summer, which was uh, a, a huge blessing for me and my family. So I didn't get to participate in a lot of the sermon series. But what little I've heard and what I've heard from other people, people seem to have been blessed. These are church matters. But hopefully you've also come away with the impression that church matters. Right? Church matters. Church is not just something of a bygone era. Church is not just some organization or something that people used to do and we're trying to get back to the good old days or something like that. Church matters. Church is a living, breathing organism that God has created as his most precious bride, the bride of Christ that would be a living, breathing, active organism to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ throughout all generations and throughout all parts of the earth. Hopefully you've learned a lot about church matters and have come away with an excitement in your heart that church matters. And today we wrap up that sermon series uh, with a title of a message called The Church and Her Call to Compassion. And it's a very important topic, particularly in our day and age. And here's why. Not just because the topic of compassion is is important, but because I think we live in a day and age where certain words are defined more widely than perhaps ever before. Words like compassion or mission or grace or even gospel are being defined in ways that they were never defined before this generation, at least not as widely or at least not as prevalently. And I'm guessing if you were to take one of these terms and ask five Christians to define these terms, somehow you'll end up with six different results. And some or none of them might be biblical. And so today we look to Christ and his word in the hopes of receiving truth and a better understanding of what God has to say about the topic of compassion. Now the Bible's not short on verses speaking to the topic of what is commonly referred to as uh, justice or mercy or compassion. We're not going to get into all of these texts today, but I would encourage you to do so on your own because I think it's an important thing for you to get a biblical grasp on. If you want a little help from Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert, I want to highly recommend to you the book called What is the Gospel? Making Sense of Social Justice, Shalom, and the Great Commission. It's an excellent book. It's available uh, on Amazon or christianbook.com or cbd or whatever it's also available in our resource center if there's any left so you can stop by there pick it up if it's something that would interest you you'll be greatly greatly uh, encouraged now this is a hot button topic nowadays definitely a church matter for us and perhaps in a sense it always has been Uh, in it's not a direct parallel but it's worth mentioning that in mark 14 we read of a woman who brought a very expensive perfume to jesus breaks the bottle pours it on his head. And what are the reactions of the people around there? If you're familiar with it, 
Um, they scold her and rebuke her and say, this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Leave her alone. And it's not because he liked the perfume. Leave her alone. This smells good. It has nothing to do with, with the actual object. But he says, why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. For you, you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. It's not a social justice verse. I'm just saying, from the beginning of Christianity, people have struggled with what's the best use of our time? What's the best use of our resources? Here, it's an issue between worship or should it be given to the poor? But this is not a new issue, but it's really heightened in our day and age for a variety of reasons. So we'll look at different texts today, but the primary text I want to call to our attention is one that is commonly referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it begins in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. Now, a parable is typically a fictitious but realistic story told to illustrate a point. A fictitious but realistic story that is told to illustrate a point. It's one of the most effective ways to make a point because everyone loves a story. I love parables, love parables, and I want to encourage you today to not only read this parable with me, but encourage you to find yourself in the story. Some of the best ways that you can respond to parables is see, how would Jesus have, what's the parallel illustration that I can draw? How can I apply this parable so it's not just a nice story, but Jesus told this story, as we'll see in a moment, so that the person who was asking it, the inquirer, the lawyer, would find himself in the story and therefore know how to apply the truth that he was teaching. And I want to encourage you to find yourself in the story. And like I said, it starts in verse 25, but I'm actually going to take you back to chapter 9, beginning in verse 51, just so we can get a big overview, and we're going to fly, 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 fly over the verses between 951 all the way up to uh, the the parable of the Good Samaritan, and here's why. Luke is written as a narrative. Then this happened. We did this, and then this happened. Then this happened, and we went here, and we did this. I want you to see what was leading up to this point. Right? I want you to see what would be on the minds of the disciples, on the mind of Christ, on the mind of people, because of the context it finds itself in. So picking it up in verse 51, uh, we see this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him. So he went, he would, oftentimes Jesus would send people ahead of him, make preparations for him to come and preach the gospel. But the people didn't receive him. The Samaritans rejected him. So when James and John see this, we see in verse 54, which I just find amusing. When the disciple James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? And then Jesus is like, no, we just stop. No, with the, stop with the fire. All right, no. We, they, they, no, I, I'm Jesus. Okay, I'll do that. No, we're not going to. Stop it. Fire, fire. Like, no, no, no. We're not going to do that. We're just going to move on to the next town. And in verse 57, it says, and they, uh, verse 56, and they went on to another village. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So this is good. Jesus is picking up, uh, picking up people who want to follow him. Someone says, I'll follow wherever you go. But Jesus wants to make sure that they understand the cost. This is not just, you know, a, a career change. This is not just saying, hey, you know what? Well, let's do this now. Jesus says, listen, you need to realize that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. I don't have a home. I'm an itinerant preacher, so you have to understand the cost. And someone else says they want to follow Jesus, but they want some funeral leave, right, to go bury their father. And he says, let the dead bury the dead. And that's not Jesus saying he's against the burying of dead people, but he's trying to make a point. Like, we've got to go. 
We've got things to do. We've got a gospel to proclaim. This is important. Let's go. And finally, another person just says, I just want to say goodbye. Can I just say goodbye to the people in my home? And Jesus says, that's not sinful, but I got to go. I got to go. Things to do, people to see, places to go, a gospel to preach. It costs, the cost of following Jesus is high. And then we get to chapter 10 and verse 1, and we see Jesus sending out the 72 two by two. And we talked about this in one of our launch prep meetings recently. They were to take nothing with them that they typically would have taken. No money bag, none of that. Just depend on the Lord. And they were to look for people of peace, people who would be uh, hospitable, people who would house them, people who would be kind to them. And they were to welcome these people. And if they, if they found peace with them, they were to stay there, heal the sick, and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And if they were not to receive them, they were to then shake the dust from their feet, but still let them know that the kingdom of God has come. But preaching seemed to be uh, commanded for either situation. Hopefully you're still with me. Skip down to verse 16. Jesus says he wants to reassure them that uh, those who hear you hear me. Uh, Those who reject you reject me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So in other words, as he sends them, he lets them know, listen, when you're rejected, fear not. It's not a personal beef. It's the message. When they reject you, they're really rejecting me. Then he says, you know, actually when they're rejecting me, they're rejecting Him who sent me. It's the message of the gospel. And similarly, when they hear you, it's not because you're so eloquent. It's not because you're so funny or so relevant or so cool or so hip. It's because their hearts have been impacted by the gospel. By the gospel. So thus far, if you look from 51 all the way down to uh, chapter 10, verse 16... This seems to be happening in succession. So if you look at verse 56 of chapter 9, it says, and then they went on to another village. Verse 57 says, as they were going along the road, someone said to them, so they went on to another village, right? Don't burn the Samaritan village. They went on to another village. And as they were going, someone says, let me follow you. Look at chapter 10 and verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72. So these things are happening as they go. Then they send out the 72 Uh, In verse 16, Jesus sends them out. And we don't know how they're, we don't know the space of time between verse 16 and 17. But the 72 return, and they said, Lord, this was awesome. Demons are subject to us in your name. There's high fives all around, right? Had a great time out there. The demons are subject to us in your name. (laughs) Look at this. Jesus one-ups them in verse 18. And he's like, whoop-de-doo, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Okay? So, so this is not a big deal. That demons are subject to... I mean, that's kind of a big deal, but focus on the main thing here. Focus on the main thing. And he says, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, in verse 19, over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but what? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you've participated in the gospel. Don't be so easily amused that you can, that you can do these amazing things. That's good, but I've seen even greater things. You're, you're, you're over demons. I'm over Satan. Jesus is like, I'm, you may have forgotten I'm the son of God. So, so, so you're excited about these things, but you've got to understand that eternity is at stake here. Eternity. And then in that same hour, it says in verse 20, when he rejoices aloud in the Holy Spirit, that God has revealed these things not to the wise, but to children. What's what's it like hearing that prayer? Lord, I'm so thankful you've revealed these things to my friends who are not wise. (laughs) But it's it's what's on it. It's what he's saying aloud. Lord, you've revealed these things to them. You've revealed these things to little children, not to the wise of this age, the wise people of this age. But reveal them to babes. Reveal them to people who would otherwise not know that. And then in verse 23, he turns to the disciples privately, right? 
Hey, guys, bring it in here. Come here. You need to understand. Come here. Come here. That many people have wanted to see what you see and hear what you hear, but they didn't. And you are. This is a big deal. It's a big deal. The huddle breaks. Or maybe it doesn't break. Verse 25 comes along. Teacher. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So he wasn't asking an honest question, right? He wasn't really inquiring to be informed. He was asking him a question to try to trap him, to try to test him. How's he going to how's he going to talk? How's he going what's he going to say? Let's see if I can let's see if I can test him. Behold, a lawyer, this would have been an expert in Old Testament law, stood up to put him to the test saying, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And he said to him, right I mean, he's a lawyer, so he, Jesus knows this. He says, well, what is, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, hardly impressed, but responds, says, you've, you've answered correctly. You know, go do that and you will live. Verse 29 says, but he desiring to justify himself. So this was not the answer he necessarily expected from Jesus, or at least he didn't feel, he felt the need to go the extra mile to make sure that people know, or that Jesus knew, or that everyone around knew, that someone knew, that he was justified. So like a good lawyer, he looks back at Jesus and says, hey, define your terms, right? Who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied in verse 30, he says, well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, uh, fun fact, sometimes in the scriptures we read, and Jesus spoke to them in a parable. It doesn't actually say that. This might have actually happened. He might be saying, let me tell you about this guy. He goes into some specificity there by saying the specific road. So this actually might have happened. Either way, it's just a fun fact. Um... A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers. So look at that. He was robbed. And it wasn't just robbed. It wasn't just give me your stuff, right? It wasn't just take his money. They needlessly stripped him. Then they beat him. And then they departed, leaving him half dead. All right? So I'm only mostly dead. You know, he, he, was, he was left there on the side of the road. But he had no way of helping himself. He had no way of... He didn't have the option to go and run after them and try to get his stuff back. He was, he was naked and he was, he was half dead. He was in a bad way. He was incapacitated. Verse 31. Now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was... And when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion. The Greek word splagnitsumai, meaning moved within one's bowels. You see, that's kind of awkward. But, but, you know, he had a bowel. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, he, but think, if you think about it, you know, we're so used to saying, oh, my, my heart goes out to you, right? She won my heart. He broke my heart. But where do you really feel it? Lots of times you have butterflies in your stomach. When you're really scared, you have a knot in your stomach. 
Now, it doesn't translate in, my, in, in our culture. You know, Sarah just doesn't melt when I say, you make my bowels move. It's just so, I'm not, not saying we should bring that back, but, I'm, but I, it, it makes, if you really think about it, it makes a lot of sense. So here's what I want you to picture. The priest walks by, sees him cross to the other side. Levite walks by, sees him cross to the other side. But watch, the Samaritan walks by. Oh, oh my, right? Just cuts him to the very core. That's what, it's not, and he had compassion. Like, wow, that's bad. No, it's not that. It's, oh my, that's terrible. Verse 34, so he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal. So he must have been riding that animal, right? Because if he had stuff on that animal, he couldn't set him on the animal. So now he's decided to walk, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Verse 35 says, and the next day, that means he what? He spent the... Spent the night with him. Took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, like just give him whatever he needs. I'll repay you when I come back. And then he leaves and that's where the story ends. But then Jesus looks to the lawyer and says, now, which of these these people, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? In verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, as far as application is concerned, I want to start from the end and work our way back. Okay? I find it important in parables like this to find uh, three sets of people. Let's find the heroes, let's find the zeros, and let's find you. Find the heroes, find the zeros, and let's find you. Who is God? Who is Jesus Christ as he preaches? Who is he exalting, esteeming, saying, be like this person or be like them? Who is he saying, not these people, right? Not these people. So you see that in other parables as well, okay? But here I want you to say, I want you to look at find the heroes, find the zeros, and then find yourself. The purpose of a parable like this is for the inquirer, the lawyer, to see a a parallel between him and the characters in the story. Hey, man, which one are you most like? Right? Be a neighbor. Which one are you most like? And the bad guys, the zeros, the people Jesus was not esteeming in the story, seem to most obviously be the, the priest and the Levite. They happen to be coming down the road. You see that? Look at verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. In other words, the priest was headed somewhere else and taking that road because that was the road to take. And by chance, he passed the man who was robbed. The same with the Levite. Verse 32 says, so likewise a Levite. So they happened to be going down that road. Now, the Samaritan happened to be going down that road as well. It doesn't say, by chance, the priest and the Levite went, but the Samaritan started a ministry, and he wanted to reach out to people who were mostly dead and naked on the side of a road. No, he was also going down that road by chance, but he saw him, and instead of stepping around him, he was moved with compassion. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, responded very differently than the priest and the Levite. So here's just the first point. The parable of the Good Samaritan shows us that indifference is not an option for the Christian. Okay, to put it in the vernacular, you've got to give a care. You've got to give a care. 
If you see people's maladies and see people in need and decide that you're just indifferent to it, you're not moved by it at all, I'm just going to look at you and I'm going to say, find yourself in the story, who are you, who are you like? Indifference is not an option for the Christian. I put a quote in there from a book by Kevin DeYoung called Crazy Busy, and he is quoting uh, John Piper, who says, and he says, at a missions conference or missions gathering in 2010, John Piper made the statement that we should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. He chose the word care quite carefully. This means when we hear about grinding poverty or legal abortions or biblical illiteracy, we are not indifferent. We think and feel that these things ought not be so. Now, we won't all care about every issue in the same way, but there are some issues we should all care about, some issues that should at least prick our hearts and prompt us to pray. You have to give a care. You might not be able to do something about it. In fact, I would go so far as to say, in most instances, you, you can't. I mean, you, life's just too short. You can only do so much. You've got a limited amount of time, resources, uh, skills, abilities, but you must give a care. And I realize this is subjective. How do I know if I care enough? That I don't know. You figure that out with the Lord. What I'm saying is you can't look upon someone suffering, look upon someone who's in a bad way and not care because then you're like the priest and the Levite. Does that make sense? You must give a care. You must think, oh, that's, that's terrible. Oh. That's horrible. What is, it, what is it like for that person? These things should drive you to pray. These things should drive... The fact that you can't do something about it should drive you to feel the tension in this world that exists in this broken world and to drive you to pray for that person and pray for the Lord to return. Oh, it's so broken. Makes you think, wow, this person is so needy and this world is so broken. Deal with that frustration that I feel really bad and I can't do anything about that. I feel really bad and I may not be able to do something about it, but I'm grieved. It, 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 it hurts. And if you're at a place in life where you hear of human beings, fellow human beings created in the image of God like you or like me, whether they're near or far, young or old, born or unborn, Christian or pagan, and you are unmoved... You're in a bad spot. And if you strive to find yourself in the story, you probably have more in common with the, what I'm calling the zero than you do with the hero. What about you? Have you grown callous? It's easy to grow callous, right? I mean, everywhere, every... You can look out your window or you can look at your Facebook or your Twitter feed... There's just calamity after calamity after calamity. You get you. Oh wow! Another, another mass shooting. Oh wow! Yeah. Abortions. Oh wow! You know human trafficking. Yeah. Oh, I mean they're just they're everywhere. I can't do anything about human trafficking, but I have a daughter. I have a wife. Like my, that must be. That must be terrible. Have you grown callous to the things of this world that ought not be so? When you walk by someone on the street, right, who's needy, who's asking for money, do you insulate yourself in judgmental, self-righteous thoughts? Do you mentally read your resume to yourself, recalling to mind the wise, wise decisions you've made thus far that separate you from that guy or that woman? 
as you then cross to the other side. You've, you've got to give a care. If there's one thing you take away from this parable, the people who don't care are not the heroes. Are your first thoughts that come into your mind judgmental or compassionate? Indifference is not an option. But the parable of the Good Samaritan is a great picture of the concept of moral proximity. Moral proximity. And I've put a quote in your bulletin of that book that I recommended to you, uh, make, uh, What is the Mission of the Church? And it says this, The principle of moral proximity is pretty straightforward, but is often overlooked. The closer the need, the greater the moral obligation to help. Moral proximity does not refer to geography, though that can be part of the equation. Moral proximity refers to how connected we are to someone by virtue of familiarity, kinship, space, or time. So I want to be clear, and it's going to sound a lot of times during this sermon that I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Deal with it. You just got to work it out. I want to be clear, clear that you, you have to give a care, but care is not synonymous with do. So if you care, you'll do something about it. Sometimes that's true, and sometimes that's ridiculous. You don't care about what's happening on the other side of the world because you live here. That's moronic. Sometimes care means if you care, you'll do something about it because sometimes it's within what I'm talking about, your moral proximity to do that. The Good Samaritan was walking down the road, came upon a need, met a need, right? Met a need. It's within his ability to meet that need. Care there means if you care, dude, you'll do something about it. You're walking down the road. Someone is lying there naked, mostly dead. He's lost all his stuff. Do something about it. There, in that instance, care implies do. But care does not equal do. And like I said, in verses 31, 32, and 33, we see that by chance a priest was going down that road. 32, so likewise a Levite was doing the same thing. And a Samaritan, as he journeyed, was doing that. And the good Samaritan was moved with compassion, and he did something about it. Why? Because he was able to do something about it. In the providence of God, the need presented itself, verse 33, as he journeyed. And for the purposes of our time today, he's the hero of the story, the one we should imitate. The priest and the Levite weren't wrong because they didn't dedicate their lives to a lifetime ministry of social justice. The priest and the Levite were wrong because they, as they journeyed, had an opportunity within their moral proximity to help the guy out, and they chose to step around. Does that make sense? This is about missed opportunities. Missed opportunities. This concept of moral proximity. The priest and the Levite decided to ignore the opportunity they had to offer somebody help, which makes them the zeros of the parable. And this concept of moral proximity is not just laid out in Jesus' words here, but also in the Apostle Paul's in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Could you imagine if it said so then, let's do good to everyone? I gotta go, I'm behind. Right? I mean, that's the most daunting. I'm serious. That's the most weighty. Imagine you read that. So then, since we're Christians, let's do good to everyone. It's like, what is that, a joke? Is, is God setting a standard I can't meet so he knows how much I need him? Like, that's, I can't apply that. I can't do good to everyone. I'm just Peter. I'm one guy. How helpful is it to look at Galatians 6, verse 10, and it says, So then, comma, as we have opportunity... Oh, let us do good to everyone. 
Okay, so as I have opportunity, I'm to do good to people, everyone. Rich, poor, saved, unsaved, Paul says, let us do good to everyone as we have opportunity. And you look at Luke 10 and verse 29, the lawyer asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And I don't know if you notice, but if you read through the parable, does Jesus answer him? He doesn't. The lawyer is looking for this narrow list of, okay, well, your neighbors are the people you see mostly and your family and your friends. Jesus never answers, never, never answers him. These are your neighbors. Instead, he takes the conversation in a completely different direction, stressing the importance of being a good neighbor, making a very clear point to the lawyer, you go and do likewise. Be like this guy. As you have opportunity, this is what the people who have eternal life, those who have inherited eternal life, respond with mercy and compassion because they've received mercy and compassion. They don't respond with mercy and compassion because it's the fun thing to do. They respond with mercy and compassion because they've received it. Like, oh, I've received mercy. God found me when I was literally spiritually dead and he saved me. I can give this guy a buck. And both Paul and Jesus' teaching debunks a notion popular in conservative circles like ours that says if there's no evangelism involved, the the good deed isn't worth doing. Well, I'd give the guy a dollar, but I just didn't have a tract on me. Show me the evangelism in the parable of the Good Samaritan. For all I know, the priest, the Levite, the Good Samaritan, the guy who was robbed and the robbers all went to hell. But God still says in his word that we are too to do good to people as we have opportunity. So we need to realize that evangelism is important. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But that doesn't mean someone who does good to somebody and doesn't give this full, clear presentation of the gospel is not doing good. What about you? What about you? When the Lord affords you a providential opportunity to do good for someone else, do you make the most of the opportunity? Who are you most like in the parable? You know, I'm on a date night with my wife walking around downtown Cincinnati, evidenced by the fact that I'm on a date night with my wife walking around downtown Cincinnati. I probably could spare a buck. So when I'm passing someone who's holding a sign, the guy who holds a sign that says, why lie, I want beer, that's funny, I chuckle. He doesn't get my dollar. It's a, I appreciate his full disclosure, but it's just not going to work. It's a poor marketing campaign. But the guy who says that I... Hungry, homeless, need help. Who do I want to be like in the story? He'll probably take that money and spend it on booze. Right, that guy had a sign actually guaranteeing he would. Um, But this guy, what if he spends it on drugs? I know, but what if, he's, what if he spends it on food? I want to be a good steward. You're a good steward when if you give that buck to that man, you can't afford to feed your family. That's the issue of stewardship. I'm responsible for what he does. You're not responsible. He stands before the Lord with what he's going to do with your dollar. If he's lying, he'll stand before the Lord. He'll deal with that. I don't want you or me to stand before the Lord and it's like, well, that guy actually was really hungry. You... You decided to be a good steward. 
Who are you like in the story? Now, if you tend to be more sensitive to the needs of the poor and needy, you might be thinking, yes, 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 amen. This is what Christians ought to be doing. And that's, and that's true, and that's, that's the essence of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Those who have inherited eternal life, those who have been the recipients of mercy, grace, and compassion, act in ways horizontally in this life that show that. You must give a care. And when it was in your ability to help someone else, you help someone else. You say, yes, that's what it's all about, and it is. Say, yes, that's what Jesus is all about. That's why he came. That's the essence of the gospel. That's what the church should be doing. And I'm just, ah, oh, we got to back up now. See, because that's a bit much. You say, I think you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. I say, yeah, I warned you I would do that in the beginning. But just, just, just bear with me. So, but Jesus healed the sick and he made the lame walk and he gave sight to the blind and he, he, he fed the hungry and he did, he did all of that, okay? We need to remember something. Jesus was and is 100% God and 100% man. And if you believe that you have the gift to take five loaves and two fish and feed thousands, please have at it. Please post it to Instagram. I want to see that. Like, like put, post it, share it. I want to see. If you can do that, do it. If you can touch people who are blind and give them sight and look at the dead and raise them to life and make the deaf hear and the lame walk, do your thing, man. I'm not going to hold you back. That's fine. Do it to the glory of God. But you must understand that it's not the gospel. And what I mean by saying this word is defined more widely than it should be, that's a serious thing. This isn't some intellectual debate, some in-house church debate. Earlier in the book of Galatians, Paul gives a very stern warning. Twice, two times he repeats. He says, if anyone preaches a gospel to you other than what I've preached, let him be accursed. And if you walk around saying that something's the gospel that's not a gospel, bad thing. You're going to wade into areas that are, that, are, that are way above your head. By telling somebody that this is the gospel, which is the power of salvation unto those who believe. And you're telling somebody that by doing something, this is the gospel. That means you're saying by doing something, this can save them. That's a false gospel. We're back to salvation by works. Does that make sense? And if you're confused, you kind of should be. Because what I'm saying is, Christians should do good works. That's what the parable of the Good Samaritan says. As you have opportunity, do good to all. Don't call it the gospel. Don't call it, that's why Jesus came. It's just not true. So let's try to keep it between the ditches. Christians should do good works. It's not why Jesus came. Jesus did good works, so we do good works as we have opportunity. But that doesn't mean it's the gospel. And that's that tension that we have to deal with. I don't know if you've ever been with somebody as they've died. I I have. Their last words carry weight. Or maybe you could just remember when someone's passed away, you think, wow, the last time I was with this person, they said this, they did this. Those last moments, those last words carry a lot of weight. Jesus' last recorded words are centered on two things, proclamation of the Gospels and making disciples. Proclamation and disciple-making. Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Verse 20 says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. The end of the Gospel of Luke says, uh, beginning in verse 24, uh, 24, chapter 24, verses 45 and following. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, 
and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Acts 1.8, that you will receive power in the Holy, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Go witnessing. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. John 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Why was Jesus sent? Luke chapter 4, verse 43. He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And here, you you must agree with this because it's in the Bible. No, actually, you must agree with this because it's not in the Bible. Let me just say it. There's not a single example of Jesus ever going into a town with the stated purpose of healing or casting out demons. A collective amount of zero times. He did a lot of this. But he never said, oh, we got to go. I got to, there's demons to be cast out. I've got to do these things. In fact, you notice how many times he tells people after he does these things, please don't tell anyone. We've got, I got things to, t- please don't tell anyone. You know how many times when people rush him f- to be healed, he heals them, but then he, He's exhausted and he needs to focus and he needs to get time with the Lord. That shows his humanity, right? But he did those things. Yes, he did. It just wasn't the reason he came to this earth. Mark chapter 1, verses 38 and 39. He said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For this is why I came out. That's Jesus' words. Now, once again, as we drive down this road, we've got to strive to keep it between the ditches. Don't fall into the camp of extremists who say it's pointless and useless to do good deeds for others if there's no clear, complete gospel presentation with a closing song and an altar call. We're not going to give, we can't give people a dollar, we can't help people out. Yet then you're the zero in the good Samaritan. So like, enjoy that. That's not, that's not what Jesus wants us to be. But then don't fall into the other camp of extremists of people who say this is the gospel and why we exist and what the church should be doing and the mission of the church because that's just not true and it doesn't hold biblical water. Keep it between the ditches. Keep it between the ditches. Do good to all as you have opportunity. But you can't make the case biblically that this is the mission of the church or that this is why Jesus came. There's some things also that we're told to do as individuals. That's our individual responsibilities. That's not our responsibilities to do as collective, to do collectively. And it's good to do collectively in some cases. In some cases, it's not. Like I'm to, I'm to render my affections to my wife. That's a command to me individually. It gets really weird if we look at it collectively. And you giggle and you roll your eyes, but it makes the point. So, so what, what I'm saying is not every command that is given to us as individuals, go and be, do good deeds to the poor, go and as you have opportunity, do good to all people is a command to the entire church. Does that make sense? Do these things as you have opportunity. Walk down the street, give the dollar to the person as you have opportunity. I think you're more like the good Samaritan in doing that than you are the priest and the Levite. But to then say that that means that's the mission of the church and why we're here I think it's a bit of a stretch, and I don't think that's what Jesus intended with the parable of the Good Samaritan. So we need to stay out of the ditch that says one is pointless, has to be all or nothing, and keep it between. Preach the, dis- pre- preach the gospel, preach the ditch. No, pre- I am preaching the ditch. Preach the gospel. 
It's necessary to use words. Can I say that? It's, it's, it's whole preach the gospel when necessary, use words. Let me tell you when it's necessary. Always. It's always necessary to use words. I don't think in this time it is. There's no one who's ever been saved by not using the words of the gospel. Model Jesus' love. But don't, I, I actually didn't, sh- I don't share the gospel. I just do good deeds. F- fail. That, that's not missional. That's not the gospel. It's doing good deeds. But don't think you're preaching the gospel if you're not preaching the, the gospel. I know that sounds like Captain Obvious is struck, but you've got to preach the gospel. I don't like to use the name Jesus. It offends people. I know. The gospel message is an offense, especially to those who are perishing. God uses that offense to break people's hearts. You shouldn't be offensive, so don't be a jerk in preaching the gospel. Preach the gospel kindly. But don't think, oh, I, I, don't, I don't share Jesus, but I do something just as good because I do good deeds. And people then, they just, they automatically know that they're a sinner in need of a Savior, that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. Uh, that can never be handed out in a cup of water. Finally, we need to dispel the myth, the myth, that the only thing compassion will lead one to is meeting the felt needs of someone else. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. Now, this is the account of Jesus feeding thousands of people. Miraculously feeding thousands of people. I want you to see something. Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. But now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Imagine that pulling up to the shore. We're here. We're here. And so are they. Okay. (laughs) Will you look at verse 34 with me, please? When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had what? compassion on them. Same Greek words, moved within his very core, saw this crowd and had compassion on them. Why did he have compassion on them? Because they were what? Hungry. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. How did he respond? We fed them so they'd listen to him. I'm not saying that's wrong, but that's not what he did. It actually says he began to teach them many things. Same Greek word, same emotion, same motive that the Good Samaritan had. Jesus had that same thing, and you know what it led him to do? Oh, my. These people are like sheep without a shepherd. I need to teach them truth. Now, I already said in the beginning, you can read on. He then feeds them. It's miraculous. It's awesome. He had an opportunity to do good, and he didn't say, well, I'm only here to teach, and then i got to go. But compassion drove him to teach. Compassion drives you to, to meet the needs of the person, and that hour, his compassionate thing for him to do was to teach them truth. 
And friends, ultimately, there is nothing more compassionate than coming alongside someone and showing them who can meet their greatest need, and that is Jesus Christ. There's nothing more compassionate than pointing someone to a Savior. There's nothing more compassionate than meeting everybody's need, because everybody has that need. Some people have physical needs. Some people need a glass of water. Some people need a home. Some people need clothes. I'm not, I'm not downplaying that at all. But all people need a Savior, regardless of socioeconomic status. So you don't have to find the right person. People need a Savior. Preach the gospel, use words, and call people to Jesus. That's the ultimately the most compassionate thing that you can do. And I'm just saying, don't fall into the ditch of saying, that's all I do. Because then you're the religious Pharisee, you're the priest, you're the Levite. I hope that makes sense. We need to keep it between the ditches. But we also need to understand that there is nothing, nothing, nothing more compassionate than coming alongside one and showing them who can meet their greatest need, who can save them from death and hell, give them meaning and purpose in this life, and home and eternity in the next. Will you look for those opportunities? What about you? Will you look for opportunities to advance the mission of God's church? Will you pray that God gives you compassion for other people, that you would look at people who are lost and just like Jesus did in Mark 6? Oh, my. Stupid lost people. No. Oh, my. They don't even know they're lost. Hungry people know they're hungry. Lost people many times, most times, don't know they're lost. How sad. They don't know the judgment that is to come. They don't know the heaven there is to gain. They don't know of Jesus. And they're just doing their thing and they don't know that judgment is coming. Will you pray that God would move within you and give you a heart of compassion That God would give you the courage to stand and the confidence to speak and the heart to sacrifice so we might accomplish the mission of God's church, proclaiming the truth of God's word and the mercy of God's son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Help us as finite human beings who are prone to extremes. Help us to sort it out. Help us to uh, rightly divide the word of truth. Help us to understand the opportunities you've set before us. Give us insight and wisdom, Lord, as we have opportunities in the life that you've given us to serve and to meet felt needs. And Lord, may we always champion the name of Jesus Christ in all that we do. And may we stay focused on mission. Help us not to fall into either ditch. Help us to glorify you both in serving others and in preaching the gospel and proclaiming the kingdom of God, even as our Savior did, in whose name we pray, amen.